Well, good morning. Good to be with you. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Uh, we are going to begin this morning the book of Galatians. Pretty excited uh, to begin this book. Uh, and we'll, be, we'll this morning, God willing, be covering the first nine verses. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I want to thank each one of you as well for the participation yesterday. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, the thing I enjoyed the most is serving alongside of brothers and sisters in Christ. That is active church. And I love that. Um, and I know, I know that it pleases the Lord. Um, so alright, Galatians uh, chapter 1. Here we go, verse 1. Uh, Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and will the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8. But if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let's pray. Oh God, we come this morning and we gather around Your Word. Lord, because that's what we trust in. Far greater than we need to be entertained. Far greater than we need... Uh, to enjoy these next few minutes, far greater, Lord, is our need to hear from You. Our need for our souls to be fed by Your Word. And so, Lord, we come as a group of people collectively looking at Your Word and saying collectively, we bank on it. We trust in it. And we trust that You will bear fruit from it. And so, God, I pray You will. And in particular, this morning, God, I ask that You would set a strong foundation for us as a church that we trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ as displayed on the cross of Christ as the only true, pure Gospel. And we don't just set it in a statement of faith. And we don't just pray it one time, but God, I ask 
that You will move in our hearts, that it will be our fuel every single day. God, I can't pull that off. I can't even pull that off in my own heart. Lord, only You can do that in the hearts of Your people. And so I ask that You would do that this morning. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin this letter, um, we are going to learn a couple of things. Uh, And so, verse 1 and 2, let me read that again as we dive in. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So even as you begin this, you can see this is a letter. It is... To these people, and it's listed who it's uh, to, and it's listed who it's from. In particular, it is written from the Apostle Paul. It's a letter. And it's written from the Apostle Paul to the churches, plural, in Galatia. Galatia was a region in the Middle East. Uh, it is where modern day, well, it would be part of modern day Turkey, as modern day Turkey comprises much more of what would have been just Galatia. So just real big picture, remember, if down here is Jerusalem, up here would have been Syria, and still today there's a Jerusalem, and we know there's a Syria, then remember, over here is going to be modern Turkey. So Paul, remember, Jerusalem is where the church starts. Paul's central church is up in Syria, which is where is in Antioch, which is in Syria. And then Galatia is where he went on his first missionary journey. And there's a region of churches uh, that we hear Derby, Lystra, for example. We hear those throughout the text later in, in the Revelation. Those are ones that Paul ministered to in Galatia. Paul's primary audience are Gentiles. That's who lived in the Galatia region, or primary Gentiles. Furthermore, we believe that he went to this region on his very first missionary journey. Now, I tell you that to tell you that I believe, like many other scholars believe, this is actually the very first letter ever penned by Paul. So he writes this letter very early after, very early after he um, uh, went to Galatia. He starts his churches, these new believers, and very soon after, he's having to write them a letter to deal with some issues. And from the outset, listen to the language. From the outset, Paul's having to defend his authority as what? As an apostle. Paul, an apostle. But then he goes on, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. This is for two reasons that Paul has to defend his apostleship. And really, when he's defending his apostleship, he's doing that to defend his authority. There's two reasons. One, like I said, it's his very first letter. So a lot of people had heard of Paul, they've heard about Paul, but they actually don't know where he fits in terms of authority, and many people were doubtful about his authority. He wasn't one of the ones who walked with Jesus, and far from it, he'd actually persecuted the church. Who is this guy, is the question. And Paul is trying to set a tone for who he is. Paul is a spreader of news. He's a spreader of the gospel, which is a spreader of the good news, right? We call people who are spreaders of news today, we call those what? Journalists, right? Or we call them evangelists in particular of the good news. That's right. As a journalist, what's one of the key things a journalist needs to do? You've got to corroborate your source. 
We just saw this week in politics, or actually a few weeks ago, a, uh, a couple of uh, high-ranking officials running like scared because they hadn't cooperated the authority of their source, and now they're doing everything they can to backstep. As a journalist, you have to cooperate your source. Hear clearly. This is what matters to Paul. He says, my source, my source is Jesus Christ, the Lord Christ Himself. And that's key. Because if, if that's true, then what Paul says is not on par with what any other man says. It is from God, and therefore it cannot just be attributed to Paul. This is an important part of the book. He'll spend a while defending his authority, but he's going to do that more in verses 1 through 10 all the way through chapter 2, verse 14. So we're not going to shell all that out here. Go to verse 3. Grace, so let me establish again, just to remind us, we've got from Paul, or the Apostle Paul, to the Galatians, this letter, to the churches in Galatia, and it comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how he greets them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul moves quickly to what this whole letter, people, and you're going to hear this over and over and over in the weeks to come. This whole letter is about what he's talking about right here. This is a greeting, but it's not merely a greeting. If you read this, this is not just flowery words. This is Paul getting at the heart of the book when he says the grace and peace. Paul is writing because God has acted that is, Paul has given to them. Paul has shown, or God has given to them. God has shown them undeserved mercy. And the main end of that mercy is the accomplishment of his gift, and that is peace. The Galatians to whom Paul was writing, like Paul, were enemies of God. Now let that sink in. Paul's going to establish that clearly throughout the book. They were enemies of God. So for him to start a book and say grace and peace, something's changed. They have peace now because of God. Because of grace. So grace and peace set the tone for the entire rest of the book. Let's get deeper. Verse 4. Beginning of verse 4 says... Remember the end of verse 3 says, From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's going to define who Christ is. Who gave Himself for our sins. He gave Himself for our sins. This is the language of sacrifice. He gave Himself for our sins. And more specifically, this is the language of substitution. This gets right to the heart of the Gospel. Almost everyone believes that a person and Jesus of Nazareth lived and died on a cross. Almost no historian doubts that. Almost all believers will say that Jesus, or sorry, almost all Christians or those who claim the name of Christ will say that Jesus was the Son of God. So all Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross and almost anyone who claims the name of Christ is going to say Jesus was the Son of God. And so all believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross. But there's a huge debate as to what 
the cross accomplished. Let me say that again. There's a massive debate about what was accomplished on the cross. We call this the debate over the atonement. Now stay with me. Because this matters. I promise you. There are multiple positions. Three general positions. There are some who want to claim that the main problem that Jesus' death solved was that it rescued humanity from spiritual forces. The main problem that it solved was that it that man was held captive by outside spiritual forces and the accomplishment of the cross was to set man free from this bondage. This theory or group of theories is summarized often as called Christ the Victor theories. And there's others who want to claim that the main accomplishment of the cross was, was not necessarily setting free from, from spiritual bondage, but instead that it satisfied man's subjective need to feel loved and to know God's love for them. So the main thing, according to this theory, that the cross of Christ accomplished was that it was a dramatic portrayal of the love of God And as such, we are now so overcome after seeing that love that we can now effectively share it. This is generally described, or the group of theories is generally described as moral influence theories. So while each of these certainly describes a crucial part of what happened on the cross, certainly we're going to say, sure, there's a rescue from spiritual darkness on the cross. And sure... It was a wonderful portrayal of God's love. But those two in and of themselves are highly inadequate to define what was in fact the main problem solved on the cross. They are inadequate to define the atonement. To describe the cross is merely about victor over spiritual forces or describe it as merely a portrayal of love, I'm afraid would be like describing the sacrifices of the soldiers, U.S. soldiers on the beaches of Normandy by saying those were encouraging and inspirational. I don't know about you, but those sacrifices were certainly encouraging and inspirational. But it is highly inadequate to call them only that. So what does it mean? What does the atonement mean? What does the cross of Christ really mean? Listen to the language. Jesus gave Himself for our sins. He sacrificed Himself for our sins. This week in our reading plan, if you're following along, you read Isaiah chapter 53. Oh, wonderful um, wonderful chapter. In fact, you probably saw, if you're following on Twitter, you saw the entire chapter tweeted out across the day. Uh, this is a massively important chapter. And it's always amazing that, to know that it's written six centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth. Listen to this verse in Isaiah 53. He, this is obviously speaking of Jesus, He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now when it says that Jesus opened not his mouth, 
It certainly isn't claiming that He didn't make any noise at all on the cross. We know. We know there were groans. We know there were words. You ask the thief on the cross who at the last minute Jesus said, I'll see you today in paradise if Jesus spoke on the cross and He's going to say, praise God, He spoke. So what does it mean when it says Jesus opened not His mouth? It is highlighting the fact that when He went to the cross, He did not go kicking and screaming. He went to the cross willingly. He was a willing sacrifice. So we got Jesus, He's a willing sacrifice. We got the cross, but this only makes sense if it's necessary. So why is it necessary? It's necessary, hear this, because we have sinned. That's why it's necessary. Furthermore, God the Father will certainly judge our sin. So Jesus' sacrifice saved us from the wrath of God because, key word, He was substituted. And He substituted Himself to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. This is the clear, consistent story of the Scriptures. I could read you dozens of texts, but the one you probably know the most is this. Romans 3, verse 23-25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the need. That's the necessary part. And are justified. That's a big word for made right. They are made right, so they got this sin, that's a problem, but they're made right, that's some good news, by His grace, that's the giving part, as a gift through the redemption, the buying back that is, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a big word that means an appeasement. He appeased by his propitia- the propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now that seems technical to you. That's because, friends, that is legal language. Why? Jesus was penalized for our sins. This is why as evangelical Christians, we deny that Christ the victor models or the moral influence models sufficiently capture what happened on the cross of Christ. Instead, we stand firm that Jesus was penalized on our behalf and willingly substituted Himself for us. We call this penal substitutionary atonement. And I am praying you will see over the next few weeks as we walk through the book of Galatians that Paul argues vigorously for this point. And I'm praying that you will see that if this is lost, so also you can toss the Gospel. Friends, remember, when we lose the Gospel, we lose good news. Paul begins his book aimed to defend the Gospel by explaining the heart of the Gospel is the good news that we have been saved from God. Now listen, keep going. Verse 4, who gave Himself for our sins, and now look at this next clause, to deliver us from the present evil age. So, so we said that the main accomplishment of the cross was that it overcame our sins by Christ being our substitute. And now he, Paul continues and says, but He delivers us from the present evil age. And he said, now wait a second, I've got to be honest to him. 
the deliverance language kind of sounds like the Christ the victor. I mean, He's delivering us. He's, he's overcoming. He's got the word evil there. He's overcoming the spiritual forces. Well, let me assure you, this is not the case. And instead, something greater is in view. Two reasons. First, because one of the inadequacies of the Christ the victor model is that this theory holds that Jesus, on the cross of Christ, saves a bunch of innocent people from outside evil spiritual forces. So you've got all these people who are innocent and would be good on their own, but they're being held by spiritual forces. The cross sets those forces free, and now they are good to be good on their own. There's a problem with that. <laughs> you see that it describes that the world is evil. That word evil is used in the Bible in many different places. It's actually used off the lips of Jesus our Lord Himself. Listen to who He describes as evil. Listen to this. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus compares God's provision to the provision of man. And He says, If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It always amazes me about this verse that Jesus calls us evil, and that's not even the main point of the verse. <laughs> it's, it's to Jesus like describing the sun as hot. I mean, you all are evil. You get that, right? Okay, well, good. Since you know you're evil, think about how you give gifts and you're still good. Imagine how great it is that your father gives gifts. That's the whole point of that. But he just tosses out your evil like, hey, sun's hot, you're evil. In other words, the Christ the victor model wants to claim that on the cross, Jesus sets free a bunch of innocent people who are fine on their own, but once set free from that evil, they're good to go. And that's not what happened. Far from it. The single most dangerous evil that Christ freed you from on the cross is the sin that you have committed, bar none. Now praise God, He continues to fight all the evil of the world, but it is first accomplished by substituting Himself for us. Second, when Paul says that Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age, he does not mean that this is the cause that which brought Jesus about the cross or to the cross, but it is the final great outcome of the cross. Let me put it this way. The end game, the final move, the full glory of the cross will be seen for all of those for whom Christ was penalized when He substituted Himself when they are finally saved from this evil age and brought home. So the final aim of the cross is to deliver us from this evil age. The cause of the cross is our sin. When we are fully delivered from our sin, then no more will we deal with the effects of sin and finally we will enjoy God for all that He is. That is what Jesus came to do. In essence, the great end game of the cross is that Jesus saved us for God, unto God. I think you will see through the rest of the book that this idea of Jesus delivering us, delivering us from our sin, delivering us unto God to finally enjoy God, to live free for God, 
is a major part of the gospel. Keep moving. The rest of verse 4. So first he says, "...who gave Himself for our sins, deliver us from the present evil age, and now according to the will of our God and Father." According to the will of God our Father. We are saved from God. We are saved for God. And the Gospel continues. We are saved by God. One of the most startling verses of Scripture also is in Isaiah 53. Let me read this to you. Some of you have probably never heard this verse. Just listen. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. That is, to crush Jesus. He, that's God, has put Him, that's Jesus, to grief. You say it one more time. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. I'll never forget the first time I heard that verse and it actually settled in. I was flabbergasted. How could this honestly be? It is not the claim. I mean, it would be one thing if the claim of Scripture is that God the Father merely allowed the cross of Christ to happen. But do you hear what the Scriptures are saying? God the Father planned it to happen and He pulled it off. You say, well, that just seems a little outlandish. Tons of places we could turn. Let me give you one clearest. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In Him we have, verse 7, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. That is His plan, according to His purpose, So that's the purpose of God before time ever began was to set forth Jesus and say, I'm going to strike Him down on the cross. It was planned before you were ever born, before you were ever thought of being born. And He goes on, which He set forth, that is He put it in motion in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. God the Father eternally willed to crush His Son to save us. Now let that sink in. It seems so hard to imagine that many have called it divine child abuse. Do you realize because of this claim right here, that is one of the central reasons these other theories of the atonement exist? People cannot swallow that a father would do that to his son. Divine child abuse. Well, it would be. And it would be horrible child abuse when you add on to it that Jesus never sinned. It would be. Save one thing. Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly. The picture, you remember the picture of Abraham being asked 
to take His Son and lay Him on the altar? You remember that, right? You just your, your gut just turns. It turned before I ever had a child. And now I can barely follow the story. He asked Him to take Him up on, on that mountain and sacrifice Him. It's unreal. Abraham, strike down Isaac. But people, listen, beloved, listen. That story of Abraham and Isaac, yeah, it's a picture of the cross, but it is far different from the cross of Christ. Major differences. Major difference one is obvious. God the Father actually did it. Major difference two, Isaac was a sinner and Jesus was perfect. Major difference three, Isaac was not God and Jesus is God. But major difference four is startling. If you want them to look the same, then what you got to have is you got to have Isaac crawl up on the altar and say, Daddy, go ahead. On the cross of Christ, it's the amazing picture of the son crawling up on the altar and laying himself down. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit is orchestrating every detail. And then finally, God the Father striking a crushing blow. He planned it. He orchestrated it. He designed it. He willed it. We are saved from God. And we are saved for God. But the Gospel says we are saved by God. It's an amazing truth. I tell you, go if you will. You search and look at every beautiful piece of art this world has to offer. Search and listen to every wonderful piece of music you can find, ever composed. Scour all of creation to find its most fathom displays. And I'm telling you, you can find nothing that comes close to the beauty displayed on the cross of Christ. It's unbelievably beautiful from every perspective. And then he finishes it with this. Verse 5. Now you understand why verse 5 is just so glorious. Listen to this. To whom? He's speaking of God. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When you first read it, you're like, okay, Paul, get on with the story, right? Oh, Paul can barely get on with the story. He writes verse 4 and he pauses and says to God, be glory forever and ever. And he's not just making up some flowery language like he's trying to write a modern hymn or a modern praise song that you say it over and over again. And ever and ever and ever, right? He's not trying that. No. He's saying, he means exactly what he's saying. There will never be a time ever for which God, not every second, will be getting praise for what happened on the cross forever and ever and ever and ever. The angels are doing it all the time. They're bored with anything else. And now verse 6 comes well into view. Listen to verse 6. I am astonished that you so quickly, you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. 
and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. One of the things I love about this letter, and you're going to see it throughout, this is kind of like Paul uncensored. Right? Uh, he hasn't gotten all his, his time as an apostle under his belt. Um, and you get raw Paul throughout. And he, it is a passionate book. I love that. And that's what you're getting here. Paul is just saying, I, I don't get it. It's the gospel. It's the only gospel. And you're acting like there's another one. I don't get it. Listen to the language. He uses the language of desertion. Now, you ask anybody who's stepped foot on a battlefield what they think of the idea of desertion. And Paul is telling them, that's you. Deserters. But Paul sees the gospel as being so laser focused that any attempt to add to it equates to the denial of it. He says that they have turned to another gospel, but there is no such thing as another gospel. Remember, the word gospel means good news, so they are deserting the good news as revealed on the cross of Christ for another set of good news. Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be cursed. Paul tells them, if a man or an angel tries to preach another gospel, let him be cursed. Why do we stand in full opposition to the message of the church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints? Because of the conjunction after the word Jesus Christ. According to these verses, there is no room for the church of Jesus and anything else. If anyone tries to add to the gospel, they will distort it and they'll ruin it. Including the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith and the angel who visited him, the angel Moroni, and including the Islamic prophet Muhammad and the angel Gabriel who visited him. What does Paul have to say to Joseph Smith, the angel Moroni, the angel Gabriel, and the Islamic prophet Muhammad? He says, let them be accursed. That's not a gospel. And I don't find it as mere coincidence that he picks a man and an angel and that the two uh, uh, lies, the two blasphemies, heresies that have caused Christianity more problems throughout the ages has been number one, Islam, and number two, Mormonism. And they were both started by men who tried to add to the gospel and claim their message came from angels. It's not a coincidence. Now all that said, and there's a lot, I know. I, I don't think the, Ga- the Galatians returning to anything as sophisticated is Islam or is Muslimism or Mormonism. Instead, it was subtlety, as we shall see in the later chapters, that made it so dangerous. And this is why it works this way. When someone has actually stared at the beauty of the Gospel, and they actually look at the cross and see it for all it is, Satan can't go and try to substitute it for anything Real easy. 
He can't do it. How do you touch it? It's like a guy who has owned a yacht, a top-notch yacht, and then you go try to sell him a broken-down bass boat. Guess what? It's not working, right? So what do you do if you want to, you know, trip him up? What you do is you, you say something like this, hey, that's a nice yacht you got there. Sure is. Well, wouldn't you like to add a little something to it to make it even better? Sounds good. How about you try some of this gas treatment? By the way, I know nothing about boats. This is the best analogy I could come up with. So just flow with me here, right? All the while, the guy puts the gas treatment in thinking the yacht's going to be smoother than it was, and it ruins the engine. That's how you get after them. Don't try to sell them a bass boat. It's exactly how Satan comes at the church. He's not trying. He can't even begin to uh, replicate the cross. But what he can do is try to sell us something that will actually kill it. Well, that's what happened in Galatians. And we'll see as we walk through the book. I want to warn us, beloved, that we are in danger of the same thing. We are all in danger. Please listen up. Listen up for the next... We're more than way past two-thirds. There's 11, no, ten and a half pages total. We're on the beginning of page eight. You only got two more pages. Please listen. We are all in danger of trying to add to the gospel. All of us. We would never verbalize it that way. But in our daily lives, we are in danger of living like it. I submit that if the first letter ever penned in the New Testament was a warning against it, then it is a danger the believers have and will always have. Mark this. Gospel additives bring gospel corrosion. Gospel additives bring gospel corrosion. And hear me, we are all very good at manufacturing and embracing gospel additives. We are all good at trying to add to it. And let me close in trying to give us a picture of this. I mentioned the idea of deliverance is a helpful picture for understanding the end game of the gospel. And as you know, I like analogies a lot. Um, I, I like to think, I love abstract thinking, but I've never been one of those people who's brilliant enough to, to pull it off without thinking of the particulars or within some examples. So I need analogies. I also always give the disclaimer that no analogy is perfect and every analogy will break down somewhere. There's your disclaimer, okay? Now you're like, get on with it, bro. Alright. Disclaimers aside, let me offer this analogy for how daily living and the gospel are lived out in hopes that we'll see the danger of gospel additives. So imagine there's a continent and it's ruled by an evil ruler. Let's call him Morgoth because that sounds really evil. It's also in Lord of the Rings and that's really cool. So there's a continent and it's ruled by Morgoth. And the, the deal is that there is a day coming when Morgoth will certainly destroy the entire continent. He's going to blow the whole thing with nuclear weapons like we've never even thought of. It's my analogy, I can do whatever I want. Alright? So he's blowing this thing and he will do it. The plans are in place and he'll certainly pull it off. And on this continent there lives a group of people. We'll call them, hey, Galatians. 
And the Galatians have no idea about this. They're just going about their business. Things don't seem quite right. Many of them would say, we still haven't found what we're looking for. But they're just going about their business. And about that time comes a guy, an apostle or messenger. And his name, let's call him Paul. So Paul comes up and he explains to them all about Morgoth. He says, look, you're in grave danger. He's going to blow this thing to smithereens. You stay here, you're all toast. Oh my goodness. Paul says, but there's some really good news. The good news is there's a group of Navy SEALs coming. Just wait for them. In fact, I'll wait with you. So they wait, Navy SEALs come. Paul introduces them to the Navy SEALs. He explains, these are guys you need to follow. The Navy SEALs say this. They should give them very clear directions. If you stay here, you will be destroyed. No problem. That's what's going to happen. Next. But if you follow us, you will be saved. If you don't follow us, you'll perish. If you follow us, you'll live. Well, they fully embrace it. They start following the Navy SEALs. Paul's on about his land, going to the next village on the continent to try to tell them about the whole deal and tell them the SEALs are coming and they got to follow and blah, blah, blah. Not even a year later, Paul gets word that many, in fact, most of the Galatians have stopped following the Navy SEALs. So Paul, he's got a phone in my analogy, he picks up the phone. It's a lot quicker than a letter. He picks up the phone and he calls them. And he, and, and he says, um, uh, what's going on? I hear you all started listening to some false teachers and you're not following the Navy SEALs anymore. What in the world are you doing? You are following well. Who has bewitched you? And they respond, oh, Paul, we're with you, brother. We love the SEALs. In fact, we never start one of our meetings without beginning in the name of the SEALs. See, we've gotten with a group of folks and we're building a shelter. A bomb shelter. Oh, it's a big bomb shelter. And we're telling more and more people, and you know what, they're going to come and they're going to help us build this shelter. It's on. Paul, on the other end of the phone, can barely speak. But... You're not following the seals. Oh, Paul, you must not have heard us. We love the seals. In fact, you know, I'm wearing my I'm the seal deal t-shirt right now. I got my bracelet, what would the seals do? Got a bumper sticker sign, sealed, you get it, Paul? And delivered. You know what? We even have our own little music group, the Seal Music. Yeah, we got traditional, the Seal Singers. We got our more contemporary, rock like a Seal. We even have our real edgy Seal Daddy. I mean, we're bringing it, Paul. We got our own little music stations. People are listening. It's Seal Music. We even we're going to build some of our own schools. We're stop sending them to state schools. Them come to the shelter schools. It's on, Paul. We got this thing, Paul. About to choke on his tongue. Paul says, Listen, and listen clearly, you foolish Galatian. Your little shelter, it will be squashed like an egg under an elephant. It will not save you. If you want to live, follow the seals. Gospel people is the wonderful news that Jesus Christ came to sacrificially with no credit to us by the planning of God Himself wonderfully and completely 
deliver us from our sin in this fallen world. Those who believe in Him follow Him. Actively, completely trusting Him. Banking on Him. You know, in the analogy, the wildest part of that is that the Galatians thought they were following the seals all the while not following the seals. If you ask them, if they were honest, they'd say, oh, well, we have the seals and we have this shelter. And as soon as you hear the word and, you know you're in trouble. They had this initial encounter with the seals, but then they went and began a shelter. As if that encounter counts is actively following. Now compare that to one of the Galatians who is actually still following one of the seals, or the seal team. What if you were to ask him? He's actively still following, never went off on the crazy shelter approach. If you say, now how are you going to make it out of here? He would say, the seals. That's it. If it's not for the seals, I'm toast. I'm cooked. That's it. Why? Because he's banking everything on the seals. Do you think he did that one time? Mm -mm. He woke up every morning and said, So, seals, where are we going today? Because that's where I'm going. Brother and sisters, what are our shelters? Sure, we will all answer without batting an eye, Jesus saves. But what do we trust in addition to Jesus? When we find that thing, we will have found our shelter. We will have found our gospel additives. I think the best question you can ask to get at this is this question. What makes you feel good about yourself? What makes you feel good about yourself? Perhaps your family. Perhaps your marriage. Your children. Maybe some professional accomplishments. A solid reputation. Or your family's reputation. Maybe your church involvement. Listen. Every one of those can very easily become your shelter. To live like that is not only dangerous and blasphemous, it's wholly unnecessary. As I sat before the Lord this week, and I asked these questions, I'm going to be, I'm going to be real honest. There were so many more shelters that popped up in my own life than I ever wanted to admit. There are multiple gospel additives. Folks, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live with gospel additives. No. Jesus Christ stands ready to deliver us today, tomorrow, the day after that, and every day after that. We can relax. We can let go. We can rest. He's an all-sufficient and willing Savior. And so I'm asking you, would you please pray for us as a church that God would be merciful and guide us to make the pure gospel unadjusted, unabridged, and unaffixed our foundation and our rock, our only treasure and hope.
Let's pray.